the talk tonight is on the nature of awareness. And I will be referring to the study guide if you have one handy and want to take a look at the quotes. We will be using it a few times. You probably know that after the Buddha's enlightenment, he debated whether or not to teach. And he was sort of inclined not to teach. And what he said was, this Dhamma that I have discovered is profound, subtle, and hard to understand. He didn't think people would get it. So the talk tonight may not be either profound or subtle, but it may be hard to understand. (laughs) So... If that's the case, just let the energy wash over you. Take it energetically. Don't worry too much about the concepts. So as you all know, generally in Vipassana practice, we go through this systematic uh, series of instructions that direct our attention toward the, uh, what are called the objects of our sense experience. And we typically start with uh, sensations, breath, sounds, emotions, thoughts, feeling tone, intention, until we're quite comfortable relating with mindfulness to all of those different arisings. And usually then the retreat's over, right? So in this retreat, we are turning to this faculty called consciousness, or sometimes we call it awareness, which is what's responsible for knowing the sensations, breath, sounds, emotions, thoughts, etc. But in most Vipassana retreats, we don't get instructions on how to relate to this. So it's often new territory for us when we come into a retreat that is exploring consciousness, this fifth aggregate, vijnana. And D.H. Lawrence commented that not looking at this property of awareness is like somebody who's sitting outside at night by a fire. They get fascinated by all the objects that the firelight is illuminating. You know, there are the trees and the grasses and the logs and the limbs and the insects and the shadows, everything that goes on in the dance of the firelight. They're so entranced by the objects, they never think to turn and look at the light itself. It's the light that's making all this available, that's revealing it, that's illuminating it. And yet we can get so entranced by the different things that are showing up, we don't look back at the light. So in this retreat, we're kind of looking at this light that illuminates or knows all the objects of our experience. And that's really where the mystery lies. Fire is kind of a mystery And consciousness is definitely a mystery. Scientists don't have a clue how this happens. No, I don't think they even have the beginning of a clue about how it happens. But we know it. It's very close to us. It's always active. And we can explore it in our direct experience, even if we don't have a rational understanding So as we talk about this factor of consciousness and awareness and the knowing, hold it, please, in the context of it's a great mystery for all of us. So we we almost can't get too specific in our descriptions of it, in our vocabulary around it, in our terminology, and any definition of it, because it's a vast, mysterious thing. So... We'll, we'll try to be somewhat precise, as precise as we can be, but just be aware that words can't nail down this factor because it is fundamentally a deep and beautiful mystery. So we may talk about it as consciousness. We may talk about it as awareness. Now, I've mentioned before this word awareness is used in different meanings by different teachers. So some teachers, like Saida Utejaniya, will use it more to mean mindfulness. We use it, in this retreat, more to mean consciousness. So vijnana as opposed to sati. But it's a slippery word. And the reason it's a slippery word is that there's no word in Pali that needs to be translated by awareness. The Buddha's language was pretty precise. 
And so if we can take a Pali word and bring it into English, we know pretty much what the Buddha was intending by it because he used it so many times in so many ways and we get the sense of it. But this word awareness, it's a, it's a beautiful old English word and because of its old English nature, it has a deep resonance for us. But it doesn't have a Pali equivalent. And therefore, we don't know what the Buddha would have made of it. And it's hard for us to be precise about it for that reason. And that's why it can mean whatever a teacher wants it to mean. So Saida likes to use it to mean mindfulness. Guy and Sally like to use it to mean consciousness, more or less. We'll get a little more specific about that. So in this retreat, we're mostly using awareness to point to consciousness. This bare knowing of sense objects. But I want to make this little distinction between consciousness and awareness the way, certainly the way I use it. I usually use consciousness to refer to the knowing of an individual sense object, a specific arising at one of the six senses. And we'll even talk about eye consciousness, ear consciousness, uh, uh, smell consciousness, taste consciousness, body consciousness, mind consciousness. So there are these six classes of consciousness for the six kinds of sense objects. When I use the term awareness, I usually mean the broad field of consciousness that includes all six kinds of sense objects. So this is often pointed to when we say, open your attention in a wide way and notice any of the objects that are arising. So with awareness, we can include all the different kinds of sense objects and we still just call it in the big field of awareness. There can be sights and sounds and emotions and thoughts and sensations and smells and tastes, all of that within one field of awareness. So you get this sense when we were doing the pervading metta that there's a big space that we know and that things are happening within. So that's more the sense, the way I want to use awareness. The broad field in which objects are known. Consciousness is revealing objects. So let's look for a minute at how objects come to arise within our experience. And this means we're awake, we're having conscious experience, and all different kinds of objects are, are coming and going. So this is the first quote from the study guide. It's on page six. And the quote is uh, number 25. This is from a famous discourse called the Honeyball Sutta, which we may take a closer look at later. But I just want to start with the first couple of sentences. Dependent on the eye and forms, eye consciousness arises. The meeting of the three is contact. This is the fundamental definition of contact in the Buddha's discourses. It's the coming together, in this case, of I, forms, and I consciousness. And this, of course, is E-Y-E consciousness, not capital I. E-Y-E consciousness. But this then is repeated in the full discourse for all the other five, five other senses. So the coming together, it's the sense organ, the sense object, and the sense consciousness. That's called contact. Then it goes on. I'm going to come back to this later. With contact as condition, there is feeling. What one feels, that one perceives. So this is also one of the discourses that it's clearest where the Buddha is using the concept of perception. The Pali term is sanya. So there's contact, from contact there's feeling. Based on that feeling, we perceive what's happening. We perceive the sense experience. So what I want to come back to is this definition of contact, the meeting of the sense organ, the sense object, and the sense consciousness. So basically, if your eye is working and open, and something is in front of you, the eye consciousness will reveal it. Similarly, with a sound. If the ear is working and a sound arises, hearing consciousness will reveal it. 
So if we have a sound that arises in your experience, you don't have any way to turn it off. It just arises spontaneously. And what you're meeting there is the working ear, the sound and hearing consciousness. And in in our direct experience, we kind of take the sense organ for granted. So we can set that aside for now. Ears, eyes are mostly working for us. So there's the hearing consciousness and the sound coming up together. Don't think of this as two separate experiences, like the hearing or like the sound is over here and the hearing consciousness is over here. When the sound arises in your experience, both of those things are together. That's the meaning of the word contact. It's the meeting of the sound and ear consciousness. These two things are together. But the nice thing is, it's one experience for us, but we can look at either the sound or the consciousness of the sound. One experience, but it's got two aspects, and we can choose which to look at. You know, how does that work? One thing, two experiences. Okay, if you look at this bowl, is it round or is it white? It's both, right? It's one thing, it's a bowl. Is it round or is it white? It's both. So we could focus on the shape, which is the roundness, or we could focus on the color which is the whiteness. They're both here together. So when we hear the sound, two things are going on. The first is the bare sound, just that mm. The second is the consciousness of it, the knowing of it. It's in your experience. You're having a direct experience. You're knowing that sound. It's arising in consciousness. So we can look either at the sound which is what our traditional Vipassana instructions have told us to do for many years, or we can look at the knowing of it. It's a part of our experience. We can pay attention to that. And in this part of the retreat, that's what we're asking you to do. Pay attention to the knowing of it. Now, if you pay attention to the knowing, does that mean you don't hear the sound? No. It's still there too. They're together. You could look at the sound, or you could look at the knowing. Choice is yours. So we're being instructed to pay attention to consciousness itself. Now, is this um, within the realm of Buddhist practice? Did the Buddha teach this? And if he taught it, why haven't we heard of it before? So it is in the instructions in the Satipatthana Sutta, the um, fourth foundation lists a few areas that there are instructions to become mindful of. And in those list of topics are the five aggregates. There are the six sense bases and also the five aggregates. So in the five aggregates, the fifth one is vijnana. So essentially, there is the instruction in the fourth foundation to become mindful of each aggregate, therefore to become mindful of vijnana. So that's really what we're practicing. We're practicing mindfulness of consciousness. And there's one of the beautiful things about mindfulness is anything that can be noticed in our whole field of experience, we can become mindful of. We can become mindful of any emotion. We can become mindful of any mood. We can become mindful of any flicker a feeling in the body. We can become mindful of the most subtle thought. We can be mindful of an intention that's just subtly forming. And we can be mindful of this quality of consciousness, although it is one of the most subtle things to pay attention to. So if you've been having trouble as we've turned the corner into awareness, don't worry. A lot of people have trouble with this. And it can take days to land on this quality, finding this quality of consciousness. That's fine. Don't worry about that. So 
we could describe this kind of practice as mindfulness of consciousness. Some people talk of, some teachers talk about knowing your knowing, but that gets into the complexity of the word knowing, which I'll come back to in a minute. So we could talk about mindfulness of consciousness, but somehow I prefer the term aware of awareness. It kind of evokes that old English familiarity. So I like to talk about this practice as being aware, becoming aware of awareness. But if you ask me to be specific and put it in the Buddha's language, what we're practicing is being mindful of consciousness. Okay, why do we want to explore consciousness? Why is this interesting or, or valuable? You know, it seems subtle, maybe confusing, maybe hard to get. What's the point? The objects were working pretty well for us. You know, we learned how to liberate emotions and be with the unpleasant and develop a lot of equanimity and insight. Why would we turn to this elusive factor of consciousness? Well, I'm going to suggest there's a little bit of a problem in attending to objects. And the problem is that objects are sometimes pleasant and sometimes unpleasant. And as we attend to them and focus on them and build our meditation practice around them, we are building on a foundation of shifting pleasant, unpleasant, pain, and pleasure. That poses certain challenges because the unmindful attention easily leads into greed and holding on on the one hand or aversion and pushing away on the other. Now, of course, we're meant with mindfulness to develop equanimity in regard to the pleasant and painful aspects, but that's a training. You know, it's not always that easy. So being involved with objects leads us into this dance with the pleasant and the unpleasant, which can easily lead to reactive formations of desiring or pushing away. And of course, that leads into grasping, clinging, and therefore suffering. So taking a look at consciousness or awareness really helps us not to get entangled with the objects. Why? Well, for one thing, it feels like when you connect with awareness, it's like connecting with space it relieves some of the pressure and it kind of takes a step back. As you connect with awareness of an object, you can feel yourself a little bit more space around it. So that helps develop equanimity. But you're not cut off from the world. You're still knowing sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, mind objects. But you've got more space around them. The second thing is, as you start to explore this quality of consciousness or awareness, it itself is free from the kilesas. Consciousness does not have qualities of like and dislike. Consciousness reveals everything equally. You know, we could have a beautiful flute concerto in here, and you would hear that clearly. We could have a jackhammer ripping up the floor out out in the lobby, and you'd hear that clearly. Consciousness doesn't care. So as we tune into consciousness, we are stepping into a sphere where the kalesas are absent. They don't rule. They don't play. So that's enormously helpful, to have a refuge where the kalesas are not active. So consciousness and awareness are impartial. They're just like a mirror. They'll reflect anything that comes before it, and they're not harmed by it. This is tremendous. And then as you tune into the nature of awareness, you'll also find it's not moving. As you connect with objects, any object in the senses, you'll find movement, you'll find change, you'll find variation, you'll find a dance. And that's good, you know, that's fine. We can learn to work with that. We get insight about impermanence and unsatisfactoriness and uncontrollability. 
But in awareness, there's an aspect that's not moving, but still. And as we tune into that, we partake of that stillness. We feel that stillness and that supports us. So overall, this practice is meant to free us from the entangle, the tendency to get entangled with objects through clinging, grasping, fixation, obsession, and suffering. It gives us another place to be that's not entangled but is still in touch. So we aren't disconnected from the world, but we're just not as caught up. Here's another nice quote. This is on page seven. It's quote number 39. The speaker is a woman teacher from Thailand named Upasika Ki Nanayan. Uh, She's passed away now, but she wrote a book, or her talks were collected into a book called Pure and Simple, which is a very beautiful expression of deep dharma. So, quote 39, the mind that's aware of awareness doesn't send its knowing outside this awareness. Nothing can be concocted in the mind when it knows in this way. In other words, an inward-staying, unentangled knowing, all outward-going knowing, cast aside. So when we're aware of awareness, we're not sending the mind out after sense objects and we're not getting entangled in them. So this is a place of freedom. This is a place of unentanglement, a place where we can rest. It's a place of peace. Now, she uses this word knowing, unentangled knowing. And so I'm gonna, I want to take a little detour for a few minutes to talk about this word knowing. And I'm going to summarize it, but if you want to look, it's on page 10. And it's spelled out in quote, quote 60. I'm going to talk it through. I'm not going to read it. But it's summarized here if you want to look at it later. So this little passage outlines five different ways that the word knowing is used in English. So the Buddha used lots of different words to refer to knowing because his vocabulary around the mind was much more precise than ours. So I'm going to go through this list and give the Pali, which indicates the Buddha's uh, reference to this kind of knowing, In English, we could call all of them knowing, and we generally don't get more specific. But in meditation, we should get more specific. And so when a teacher uses the word knowing, you can raise your hand and say, excuse me, what kind of knowing are you talking about? (laughs) And you could say, it could be one of these five kinds that we learned about on retreat. Which one do you mean? So the most basic kind of knowing is the knowing of consciousness the word vijnana, which is just the bare knowing of a sense object, doesn't take intelligence. Every sentient being has this consciousness kind of knowing. And something I want to point out with the term vijnana, part of it is this little participle nya. So nya is a root that comes into a lot of these words that means knowing. It's a root, which is more or less synonymous with no. And incidentally, it is um, related to the Greek word gnosis, which starts G-N. So Pali is an Indo-European language, has ties to European languages, and nya is similar to the gnosis piece of knowing. So we've talked quite a lot about consciousness. This is the simplest. The second kind of knowing in the Buddhist terms, is called perception. The Pali term is sanya. So there's that N tilde A again, nya on the end. Perception in Western psychology or philosophy, I think usually means the registering of a sense object. Oh, there was a perception of sound. But in the Buddha's language, the way it's been translated, sanya as perception means something different. The best synonym is recognition. So when we hear sound, we recognize, oh, that's a bird. Or as we look around the room, we see different sights and we recognize person, 
cushion, zabaton, chair, window, door, stone, etc. So we take something in the field of the sense and we connect it through memory to a category we've known before. That's what perception does. It kind of makes sense of the world and the sense impressions by relating them to things we've already known. So that takes memory. It takes a little bit of intelligence. As we go through this list, what's going to happen is that at each step, it takes more and more intelligence, higher functioning of mind to carry on that level. So perception takes more intelligence than uh, consciousness does. The third one is just um, ordinary conceptual thought. And the word here actually is vitaka. Um, the same word we use as the first jhanic factor. Sometimes you'll see old translations of the first jhanic factor that calls it initial thought. But in meditation practice, the meaning is different and it means initial contact or connecting. But its bare meaning in Pali is just thought, conceptual thought. And so um, thought takes these words that we've developed from perception. Perception puts things in a category, you know, gives them a name. Thought, conceptual thought, takes these things we've perceived and relates them to each other. So, you know, you might say, I know that stone at the front of the room was too big to be brought in through a door. So therefore I deduce that the building was built around the stone after it was laid. And that would be a true thought. People were really excited about this stone when they found it. It was, it was on the property. It was moved to be in this spot. But it's quite a beautiful stone. So that takes a little more intelligence to bring, pull together all those different perceptions and put them together into a thought. The thought might be true or it might be false. But still, we can make up these thoughts. Then a step up from there is the knowing of mindfulness. And we went through this, I think, uh, in mindfulness of breathing. The Satipatthana Sutta says, uh, breathing in long, one knows, I breathe in long. Breathing out long, one knows, I breathe out long. Here the term that is being translated as know is pajanati. One other translator translated it as understands. So we start to see that within mindfulness, there is an understanding of our experience. We understand our experience in a certain way, and the being with that is even more sophisticated than conceptual thought. It's a superior kind of intelligence to conceptual thought. And it has the, um, this understanding piece, pajanati, has the opening into wisdom, liberating wisdom. Pajanati is closely related to sampajanya, sampajanya, clear comprehension, you again get the nya on the end, which is another way of saying knowing. It's a kind of knowing. And then the final category that I'm aware of is what I would call insight knowledge or wisdom. Insight knowledge is referred to as jnana. Wisdom is referred to as panya. And so again, you get the nya root in both those words. This is the whole purpose of insight meditation. The purpose of insight meditation is to generate these insights and knowledges. Classically, they're around the three characteristics or the realization of Nibbana. These are considered the range of of insight. Uh, In the West, we extend it and we include things like psychological insight. Oh, I see. I reacted that way at that time because of an old karmic pattern which led me to you know, reactiveness in that situation. We call that insight, formally in the Buddhist tradition, the re- insight's really around the three characteristics or the realization of Nibbana. So in Buddhist terms, this is the highest kind of knowing because this kind of knowing leads to the end of suffering. Insight, knowledge, and wisdom. So there are these five different levels of knowing. And when 
Upasaka key says unentangled knowing, I take it to mean consciousness or what we're calling awareness. She talks about aware of awareness, just this bare knowing. And this is what we'll be cultivating in this part of the retreat. Okay, so let's look into this um, quality of awareness a little, a little more. It's not so easy to locate sometimes. And yet, it's always present, isn't it? You know, anytime you ask yourself, am I aware? Does the answer ever come back no? I don't think so. Yes, when we check, we are always aware. Awareness is always there with us. But it's hard, to, it's hard to locate, it's hard to find. And the reason is, awareness is what's holding objects. So awareness can hold an object, like a sound. But can a hand hold itself? Not really. So awareness is always holding objects, but it's hard to hold, you can't get a hold of awareness itself, you can't grasp awareness. But we know it because it's working, it's functioning, it's revealing things, it's happening all the time. We're always aware if we're awake. So awareness isn't a thing. It's not a thing, consciousness is not a thing you can pick up and hold. Consciousness is the holder. But it's there, so we have to intuit it. We have to feel into its activity. We have to feel into its presence, its action. This is what Ajahn Chah said about um, not grasping awareness. He said, you're riding on a horse and you're asking, where's the horse? We're riding awareness all the time. This is from Ajahn Sumedho. It's just like the question, can you see your own eyes? Nobody can see their own eyes. I can see your eyes, but I can't see my eyes. I'm sitting right here, I've got two eyes and I can't see them. But you can see my eyes. Looking in a mirror, I can see a reflection, but that's not my eyes, it's a reflection of my eyes. But there's no need for me to see my eyes because I can see. It's ridiculous, isn't it? If I started saying, why can't I see my own eyes? You'd think, Ajahn Sumedho's really weird, isn't he? <laughs> so we can't grab a hold of it, and yet it's so near. It's so close. It's so fundamental to our every moment of waking experience. So if it ever seems, no, I can't quite connect, just ask, am I aware? And just stay with that. Yeah. I feel it. I know it. I'm not in any doubt about that. So just stay with that sense. And another quote from the study guide, this is on page 10, uh, which I really like. It's quote 62. This is by a guy named, uh, who took the pseudonym Wei Wu Wei. He was an Englishman who was living in Hong Kong. And his name was something like Terence Gray. I can't quite remember. And then he got into Zen. And he started, he must have had some realization because he wrote all these pithy Zen-like sayings, you know, but he made them up himself. So he had some real insight. And this is one of his pithy sayings from one of, he has a bunch of books. He's not alive anymore, but he wrote a bunch of interesting books. And he says, what we are looking for is what is looking. That's why we can't grab a hold of it. What we're looking for is what is looking. That's consciousness, that's awareness. So we say that um, consciousness or awareness is the knowing, knowing of sense objects, knowing of phenomena, in this most basic sense of registering, revealing the sense object. So don't think of it as an object in itself. It's more like an activity. Knowing is a verb, and I think it's best to think of consciousness or awareness as an activity. It is doing knowing. That's, that's its function. It's um, revealing, it's illuminating, it's showing the experiences of our senses. Okay, 
Now, Joseph Goldstein gives a nice instruction related to this word. He says, try putting it in the passive voice. You know, normally we might say, I'm knowing sensations. But what if you just say, sensations are being known? He said, try that. And he came on this, I think, when he was doing walking meditation. And you know, in walking meditation, there's often this tendency to think that there's an observer in the head who's looking down on the legs and feet and the sensations as you're going along. You sort of locate the eye up here, but the object is down there. So when you rephrase it as sensations are being known, you can take out that sense of the separate observer. And you're just with the sensations in the legs and feet and the knowing of them. There's no distance. So it can be skillful. Try it in walking meditation sometime. Sensations are being known. So think about this passive voice thing. We could say, for instance, the bell is being hit. And then we could say, hit by what? And we would say, hit by the striker. We could say, the cheek is being stroked. And we could say, stroked by what? And we would say, by the hand. We could say, the paper is being cut. Cut by what? By the scissors. And then when we say, sensations are being known, Look in your experience, known by what? What is doing the knowing of the sensations? Do you find that actor performing that action? You might say consciousness, but we just went through the consciousness is a verb. It's, it's the knowing. What's doing consciousness? What happens in your mind when you ask that question? Does it kind of bring it to a stop? It does kind of, doesn't it? And in that stopping, that's kind of a nice meditative place to be. Because you're not conceptualizing. You're not scrambling for an answer. You're just kind of open, receptive, interested, present, That's not a bad place to meditate from. There was a Zen teacher who established a big center in Providence, Rhode Island named Sansanim. He was Korean. He came to the three-month course one year toward the end and gave a Dharma talk. It was the funniest evening I've ever spent in that meditation hall. He was a very, very engaging speaker. So Sansanim had a, a saying that he liked to mention to people, core teaching, Only keep, don't know mind. Only keep, don't know mind. So when you pose a question like this, sensations are known by what? It puts us in a place of, I don't know. That's a good place to meditate from, and it's a good place to investigate from. So one answer, one possible answer is, um, that's an invalid question. There's nothing behind the knowing. You're just mixing up the Buddha's teachings. The Buddha spelled it all out really clearly. There are the five aggregates. Consciousness is the last one. There's nothing else there. So that's one school of thought on this question. But another school of thought says that there may be an agent behind consciousness that we might call mind that is more ongoing, that's doing the knowing. The knowing of objects is very fleeting. Comes, goes, arises, passes with the object. So the knowing, the consciousness, is clearly impermanent. When the object goes, the consciousness goes. But maybe there's some agent behind there doing the knowing. Let's call it mind, for want of, of a better word. So this has been a question in Buddhism for a long time. 
So there's this very nice story from the Chinese Chan tradition. Bodhidharma is the teacher who, as legend has it, went from India and carried the Buddhist teachings up into China, you know, long, long time ago. And the story about Bodhidharma is that he was very hermit-like. He went into a cave and he basically stayed in the cave for nine years facing a wall and meditating and wouldn't give any teachings. And people would come by and ask for teachings and plead for teachings and Bodhidharma just kept facing the wall and wouldn't offer any teachings. Finally, one person was so determined to get teachings, and I'd say a little desperate, a guy named Huike. I may not be pronouncing it quite right, but something like that, Huike. He cut off his arm, tossed it in the cave, and asked for teachings. So, please don't do that here. <laughs> Just, you know, if you'll write us a note, we'll... we'll <laughs> We'll find a time. So. so he tossed his arm in the cave and he shouted out to Bodhidharma, your disciple's mind is not purified. I beg you, master, pacify it. And Bodhidharma just calmly responded, show me your mind and I will pacify it. And Huika said, I have searched long for this mind, but I have never been able to find it. And Bodhidharma, there, I have pacified your mind. It's just like the question, known by what, right? It kind of stills the mind. So Wike was looking for his mind, he couldn't find it, and that brought him stillness. So he could just, if he was smart, he could just rest there. Actually, I think he was awakened at that point. That's the way these stories always go. He was awakened. And then um, we have a quote in the study guide from a lama from Tibet named Shabkar. He was a, I think he was a 19th century lama in Tibet, wonderful writer and practitioner. We'll get to that quote a little later, but here's another part of it. Shabkar says, when you look carefully, you won't find the merest speck of real mind you can put your finger on and say, this is it. And not finding anything is an incredible find. Friends, to start with, mind doesn't emerge from anything. It isn't anywhere. It has no shape or color. And in the end, nowhere to go. So when we turn for, to awareness and we look for this factor called mind, the not finding anything is significant. It's significant. So we can stay with that. What it means, the not finding, is it's empty. It's not a thing. It's not substantial. But you also couldn't say there's nothing there, right? Because it keeps functioning. It keeps revealing the phenomena of the world. So you can't say it doesn't exist, but you also can't find it as something substantial, as a thing. So its basic ability is knowing. We could also say cognizing. But it's also empty. And you can look at this in your own experience. When we went into the pervading metta meditation, if you feel that boundless quality of space, you can feel most of it is just open. When you look around the room tonight, There are people, there are things, but a lot of the room is open space. And as you let your awareness fill the room, you realize a lot of your awareness is open space. Nothing in it, it's not full. There are some things in it, but it's not full. This opening to the um, kind of vast emptiness of of the awareness is pointing out a fundamental feature of it. And in this expansive view, this is sometimes called big mind. So we have another quotation on page 10. This is quote 61 from Suzuki Roshi. Big mind experiences everything within itself. 
that everything is concluded within your mind is the essence of mind. To experience this is to have religious feeling. So based on this term, big mind, the meditation practice called big mind was developed by Joseph. And we'll introduce that in a couple of more days, the big mind meditation. The feeling that everything is happening within your own mind is to have a big mind. So this vastness reveals an emptiness that is like space. We say the space in the room contains all the physical elements that are in the room. And the space of awareness includes all the arisings that come moment after moment at the six sense doors. They don't fill it up. There's always room for a new arising. If the mind was full, it hit that bell and it wouldn't arise because the mind was jammed up with too much other stuff. But there's always room for one more. That's the basic emptiness of awareness. Another way to think of this emptiness is that nothing is stuck in the mind that's been there from the very beginning. It's like all the furniture in this room. Once this room was built and they took the construction equipment out and people walked in, it was empty. There were no chairs, there were no cushions, there were no people, there was no Buddha statue. But little by little, they brought all of those things in and the space of the room started to get filled up. But in this room, because of the original emptiness, everything could be taken out again, right? All the furniture could be taken out of this room and then it'd be back to its original emptiness. The mind is the same way. Nothing is stuck there. Nothing is there from the beginning. So anything that has taken up a home within the mind can be taken out again. This is tremendously freeing. Any concepts you have about yourself, any judgments about yourself, any old karmic patterns, any afflictive emotions that have taken root, any kind of suffering at all wasn't there from the beginning. And because of that, it can be moved out like furniture. That's the liberating potential of our Dharma practice. That's the liberating potential of understanding the emptiness of awareness. Nothing in the mind is fixed or stuck there. So all different forms of suffering have come about because of particular causes and conditions. And because they've arisen due to causes and conditions, they can cease when the causes and conditions change. That's what dependent arising says. When this arises, that arises. When this ceases, that ceases. So anything that's arisen can also cease. And that's why we can move from the truth of suffering to the end of suffering. That can cease. So when we discover this empty nature, that in itself is is freeing. And it, it produces a lot of faith. We can see the original emptiness of mind. We know nothing is fixed. And then we just have to do the work, which is not easy. But we recognize that emptiness. We recognize it can be done. So there's one important difference between the space of awareness and the space in the room. The space in the room doesn't know the chair, doesn't know the bell, it doesn't know the person. It's not conscious space. The space of awareness knows bell, chair, person. So awareness has a greater property than physical space. Awareness has emptiness and it has knowing. 
And as you feel into it, somebody mentioned this in an interview, the empty space and the knowing are not separate with awareness. They can't be separate. They can't be separated. In the empty space, there is knowing. Joseph uh, sums this up nicely. He talks about the cognizing power of emptiness. As you get in touch with the empty space that you feel internally, it already knows. It knows whatever appears. It's the cognizing power of emptiness. So there are basically these two qualities that are together in the mind. There's emptiness on the one hand, and there's awareness or knowing on the other. And these two are joined. They're not separate, and they can't be separated. They're united. They are a union. This is the description of the mind. The mind is a union of emptiness and awareness. And this is not just your mind or my mind. It's every mind. It's the human mind. It's the turkey mind. It's the duck mind. It's the mosquito mind. Every sentient being has this empty knowing combination. And this is to be developed. Another quotation from the study guide, also on page 10. The Buddha is giving meditation advice to his son, whose name is Rahula. I'm not sure what age. I think Rahula was quite young when he was getting this advice. Um, The Buddha said, Rahula, develop meditation that is like space. For when you develop meditation that is like space, arisen agreeable and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. Just as space is not established anywhere, so too, Rahula, develop meditation that is like space. So space is not established anywhere. Awareness is not established anywhere. That means it's not solid. It's not graspable. It's not a thing. It's not established. This is unentangled knowing. Arisen, agreeable, and disagreeable contacts do not invade the mind and remain. This is what awareness opens the door to for us. That's why it's such a refuge. And in another couple of pages, Ajahn Buddhadasa has a very nice way of saying it on page 12, quote number 70. Four. He says, we should call the mind emptiness, but because of its awareness, we call it mind. So this cognizing quality is what makes mind. So in our meditation, we want to move in the direction of recognizing this union. We want to look, we want to find awareness which takes practice, but you can do it. Asking the question, are you aware? The awareness will be there, will be felt. Can you turn to it and see that it's empty? So this will take some investigation. When I first started doing this, I had to ask a lot of questions, which don't help the meditation, but I had to go through it. So I turned to aware. Yeah, I got awareness. I'm aware. I'm knowing things. I definitely know I'm aware. Is it empty? I'd say, okay, it's wide. There's a lot of space in between the arisings. I guess it feels spacious, and that space is kind of empty. Is there a self congealing there? Oh, I love, no, it's not too much of a self there. It's kind of empty in that way. So I would ask those questions and investigate and, and find that it was actually empty the way it was supposed to be. But it took me a while to have confidence in that. And after investigating it again and again and again, I could turn my mind and recognize awareness, and it was really clear it was also empty. So then I could turn to awareness and also see its emptiness, and I could see those together. Once I could do that, then I developed more and more ability just to rest in that, that knowing of the union of awareness and emptiness, awareness and space, if you like. Now, there's one other thing that happens 
when you can recognize the union of emptiness and awareness. And this is explained by Shabkar on page 11. This is the quote that we mentioned at the very beginning of the retreat. It's one of my favorite quotes in the, in the study guide. It's quote 67. I'll read the whole thing, but there's one sentence I especially like. Not being fixed is something. Mind is beyond presence and absence. It neither comes nor goes, gets born nor dies, is illuminated nor obscured. Does your study guide read differently? Does it say neither illuminates nor obscures? It says illuminates nor obscures. Yeah, I think that's a mistranslation. It was the translation, but I checked another source that I regard as more reliable, and they put it differently. Is neither illuminated nor obscured. So I'm going to go with that one. And then this is the, this is the key phrase. Mind's nature is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive. Stripped bare of samsaric error, mind itself is surely and always Buddha. So this points to that unstained purity of awareness that's not touched by the kilesas. The basic nature of mind is not contaminated. It's not touched by greed, aversion, and delusion. Its nature is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, that's the emptiness piece, naturally radiant. So radiant is the uh, aware piece, as though the, the light of the mind is illuminating the phenomena, is lighting up, is radiating all the phenomena that arise. So sometimes this is called radiant, sometimes it's called luminosity, sometimes it's called clarity, sometimes it's called cognizance. Sometimes it's called awareness. These are all synonyms for the lighting up of phenomena. When you have these two together, the emptiness and the cognizance, you open into the third quality, which is ceaselessly responsive. And what this means is that when you can touch that empty awareness, all the treasures of the heart start to come through. And the treasures of the heart are the beautiful qualities that we've been exploring, that you've known from your meditation. Loving kindness, compassion, joy, equanimity, wisdom, patience. You can go through the whole list of of paramis. They start to come out of this empty awareness because part of emptiness is non-contraction, non-self, non-clinging, non-grasping. When the heart is contracted with kilesas, you won't be able to clearly see the empty awareness. It's not empty. It's full of self at that point. When that clinging, grasping fixation is released, you can see the emptiness, you can see the awareness, and that's when the heart qualities come through. So when the heart is not constricted by grasping, then it opens up and responds with all the treasures, all the beautiful qualities that are potential within us. So as we connect with the empty awareness, the doors are open for these beautiful qualities, peace, contentment, joy, love, compassion. So this is where the practice of awareness leads us. into this state of freedom. So we want to develop first the recognition of emptiness joined with awareness and then start to notice how the unburdened heart responds in that situation. So I'm just going to close with this quote from uh, Rumi. called Tending Two Shops. Rumi says, live in the nowhere that you came from, even though you have an address here. That's why you see things in two ways. You have eyes that see from that nowhere, 
and eyes that judge distances, how high and how low. You own two shops and you run back and forth. Try to close the one that's a fearful trap, getting always smaller. Checkmate this way, checkmate that. Keep open the shop where you're not selling fish hooks anymore. You are the free swimming fish. Well, let's just sit for a minute. Mind's nature is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive. Stripped bare of samsaric error, mind itself is surely and always Buddha. So we have about um, 30 minutes for uh, walking meditation, then the final sit with chanting at 9. And tomorrow in the instructions, we'll um, look at some specific ways to get in touch with this empty awareness as a unity. Look at that in terms of meditation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.